Dear listeners, welcome once again to another heart-gripping installment of Chilling Suspense. I am, as always, your humble host, Chester Legree. I hope you enjoyed last week's tale of maddening mystery and monstrous murder from our own Reginald Porter. I know I certainly did. But this week will be... something of a change of pace. A submission from a local writer. It has its charms. But in order to prevent any sort of public panic, let me state this for the record. All the events to follow are fiction, dreamt by a writer who wishes to remain unnamed. Everywhere except his paycheck. Any resemblance to any figures, living or dead, is strictly coincidence. Now then, with that out of the way, let us begin the tale of... The Tale of the Great Ghost. The egg sandwich looked less and less appetizing the longer I looked at it. It was leaking some strange, clear yellow fluid. It was starting to soak through the bread. I feared it would fall apart the moment I picked it up. A drink was no respite from the main course. The green glass did little to hide the water's brownish tint. Moments like this made me wonder why I even came to Ed's diner. I found myself wondering that more and more often lately. I was sitting and starting to wonder why, when the reason walked back out of the kitchen with a smile. Gladys, short, middle-aged, long reddish hair, stocky in all the right ways, cute little smushed face, always greeting me with that imperfect smile. She was an enigma to me, by no means classically beautiful, but who wanted that? She was nice. And in this city, that was worth its weight in gold. So, what do you think, Father? Someone was speaking to me. Had been since he'd sat down at my table. I turned and found the man across from me, looking at me with pleading eyes, hoping I'd give him something, anything, words of encouragement of any kind. Instead, I said, Huh? My problem, Father, the large man repeated. These weird feelings I got from my best friend's wife. Oh. I searched for words. Ran my finger along the exposed front of my clerical collar. Straightened the cross around my neck. Best to bury those feelings, son. The look of betrayal on the man's face was enough to make me realize I'd said the wrong thing. But in my defense, I was trying to eat my lunch when he sat down. Guys like him needed to learn how to figure out their own problems. I didn't get ordained to play counselor to every stiff with a crush. It's not like the Bible had anything useful to say about wanting other men's wives anyway. Nothing but the last, holy tenth commandment. Don't. I stood up, leaving my sandwich uneaten, and put down a nice tip for Gladys as I waved her goodbye. My heart sang as she waved back. Straightening my cassock, I paused. Good luck, son, I told the man, 
now sitting alone at my table, and made the sign of the cross in the air between us as I turned to leave. It was barely an afterthought. Nothing but a seminary school reflex. It was a long, dim walk through the fog back to the churchyard, and the right side of my face was getting warm under the bandages. I ran my hand across it, pressed my palm through the covering on my mangled ear to feel how damp my cloth earplug was. Felt fine for now. Approaching the clergy house, I saw candlelight flickering instead of darkened windows at St. Joseph's. I turned, made my way in, and as I stopped to cross myself upon the threshold, I saw the pews were empty except for a single man sitting alone in the frontmost pew, folded over in prayer. I prepared myself to deal with whatever issue he might have. I'm not much of an advice guy. Words have never been my strong suit. A bum trying to collect some money, now that's something I can handle. I've always been more of a man of action. I approached slowly, making sure my steps echoed in the quiet church. I tended to step lightly, and I didn't need somebody dying of a heart attack. Hello? Is everything all right, my child? I said, mustering as much kindness as I could. Oh, father, no. Yes, I, uh... He stammered, confused. He must have been lost in thought. I saw his eyes were red from crying as he turned away to wipe them. Yes, I'm sorry. It's quite all right. Tell me what's on your mind. I'm just... I'm so worried. I've come on some hard times, he said as I sat in beside him in the pew. Please, tell me more. Uh, let's start from the beginning. So... I own a bar over on 5th, The Sigil, and I've been down on my luck business-wise, but I'm getting by. Well, these guys start coming around, saying they want to buy the place. I don't want to sell, because I put everything I had into it, and what they were offering was next to nothing. So I tell them no. Three days later, my wife Marcy, she goes missing. They say I got till Friday, or else... Or else I... He choked up, breaking into tears. I placed my hand on his shoulder. It's all right. Take your time. Thank you. Sorry, I... So they say I got till Friday. Or else I'll never see her again. So I sell it to them. Sign over all the papers. But my wife, she's still missing. It's Tuesday. What am I going to do? The gangs are a real problem in this city. Let me ask around, I promise you. We'll figure this out. Thank you, Father, um... Father Martin Ward. Harvey Pratt. Thank you, Father. One of the benefits of being a priest is it's easy to get information out of people. If I were a regular man like any other, it would be harder to get the details. But everyone trusts a priest. Everyone's ready to confess. I spent the rest of my day waiting for night. The hours when I could do my real work. Waiting and restless and endlessly willing St. Joseph's old pastor to mind his own business. To stay out of mine. 
If Father Flattery had gotten on my case about evening chores, I think I might have bopped him, even if he was eighty years old. But night brought its own troubles. Flattery could never settle in his bed until he was convinced I was settled in mine. An early rest brings you closer to the Lord, Ward, he'd tell me. Only the devil works under the dark of night, and he who retires early robs the king of sinners of idle hands to work with. Prostolatizing old bastard. Once he was settled, I could make my way to my office in the basement. Flattery had put me in charge of organizing the storage area, so I kept my things down there. My trunk, that old faithful thing, same one that I had in the war. Opened it up and there it was, my uniform, my old service clothes, and helmet, dyed and painted black. A couple shallow stab wounds to the gut and the shoulder and a too-close call to the groin. That was all it had taken to convince me to reinforce the wool with thick leather backing. Add to that a knife clean through the forearm and an infection that had laid me out for a week. And a pair of leather welder's gloves weren't far behind. Then, of course, came the mask. I had gotten the idea from an old pulp, one with a cover that always stuck with me. A man in a black mask, nothing showing above the nose but those eyes. Eyes that stared right into you, and it seemed to do the trick. No one had figured out who I was. Not then. But before the mask could go on, came the worst part of that nightly ritual. I stood in front of the mirror, hesitating with my hand over my bandaged face. The bandage was a rush job, a bit of cloth from an old robe, just something to cover what lay beneath. People asked questions, because people always ask questions. I told them it was to spare them the sight of my deformity. That was a lie. Peeling back the coarse fabric revealed no deformity of birth nor anything that could have ever been caused by a stray bullet or the shrapnel of a bomb. Above the milky surface of my eye, across the brow, over the temple, and ending on hairless scalp above ruined ear, lay my scars. Three strange symbols. I could not tell you how three such symbols retained such clean edges such smooth and perfect curves, as though they had been pressed into my flesh, like a seal in molten wax. What I can tell you is that they are beyond my powers of description. The cloth earplug came free, wet, stained as always with the same black ichor. It was then that I heard him in the other room, the same humming, the same old hymn. Father Patrick died in his sleep after 70 years of service to the church, 
only to discover that the end offers no promised reconciliation or respite. Death comes and says only to the pious, Sorry, old man. That was it. It was always harder for the fervent ones to get past the denial stage. I tried telling him to leave, to get out of the churchyard and see the world, to watch a baseball game, to stop and listen to some strange new music, to enjoy a death free from life's obligations. But he was convinced that this was nothing but another test of his faith. And I, having strayed from the Lord's true path, a sinner, sent to tempt him from his own salvation. When I came around the corner and into the room, I could see him. Though my left eye, my good eye, was blind to him, he was clear enough in my right, sitting in the same chair as always, eyes closed, head bent in prayer. Any plans tonight, Father? I asked him. He continued to pray, only his silent mouth moving. I felt bad that, without a body, the full effect of the rocking chair was lost on him. Gonna go paint the town red? He did not respond. Well, I'm going down to the docks to look for a missing woman. Gonna check my usual haunts, see if any of the usual suspects have seen anyone dump a body. That's not God's plan for you, Martin, was all Father Patrick said. Eyes still closed, still sitting in that posture of perfect pious stillness, fingers intertwined in his lap. Well, when you meet him, tell God I made other plans, I told him a little more harshly than I meant to. I wasn't angry with him. Couldn't really be angry with an old preacher for preaching. When he said nothing, I loaded my forty-five, holstered it alongside my trench knife, and headed out the back. As I closed the door behind me, I could hear Father Patrick praying for my protection. A nice enough sentiment, but no better than any other words. I'd rather have him out there with me, watching my back. The cool, damp air from the waterfront hit my face as I rounded the corner and stepped onto the docks. It was a welcome respite after a long jog through a maze of narrow back alleys. It had become second nature to avoid people in the city. Most were too busy, too worried about their next paycheck, or feeding their children, too consumed with avoiding their debtors. The real challenge was avoiding the spirits. Last thing I needed was to accidentally make eye contact with a newly departed soul and have them talk my ear off all night. Ghosts don't really care about a personal schedule. They have eternity. I was still trying to live my life. Thankfully, the trek had been uneventful. I stood, scanning the docks for my mark. If Marcy had been killed by one of the gangs, she would be at one of these dumping grounds. The river was a popular spot. If she could tell me which section of it she'd been dumped in, that could reveal a lot about the killer's affiliations. If I could find Marcy, she could be a real help with me taking down these guys. It's always easy to recruit ghosts to help you take down some mobsters. There always seems to be some angry spirit out there willing to ruin their day. I was about to head downriver to move on 
when I saw her. A tall, thin spirit with auburn hair looking out over the water. I approached cautiously. Marcy? I questioned, keeping my voice careful and sympathetic. She turned slowly and looked me in the eye, calm and composed, as though she was still alive. Do... do you know you're dead? I asked, confused by her demeanor. At this stage, most spirits were different. Disoriented, agitated. Not calm, not like this. Oh yes, she said, looking down, hands folded in front of her. Can you tell me who did this to you? Why? I, uh... Well, that's what I do. I help spirits get justice. She thought about it, about what I'd said for a while, and then turned away. It was some of Ma Stevens' men. They said she had interest in my husband's club, but he didn't want to sell. I told him to sell it. I hated that place. Wanted to get out of the city. But it was his father's. He just couldn't let it go. She turned to face me again. They mentioned a poker game. Tonight, at the Lark Brothers Butcher Shop. Thank you, Marcy. I'll make sure they pay for what they did, I said solemnly. She didn't reply, just gave me this crooked, forced little smile before she walked out onto the water and disappeared into the fog. You hear about the Tantalus? One coon said to another. He was short and wide, and bluffing poorly with nothing but a pair of threes. Who didn't hear about it, Anthony? The whole West Inn heard about it, ya bum. A wiry one, wearing a dusty old hat. Lay off, Polly. Yeah, we heard it, Tony. Did your girl get out? A chubby man, with a mustache giving the thin man a stern look as he spoke. Anthony turned white and placed his cards down on the table, making a gesture that said he was ready to fold. No, Jim, she didn't. That O'Shea's a real psycho, doing what they did to Kaiser. They got beef or something? What's that got to do with us? He said, his voice beginning to rise. Calm down, Polly said, with a sneer, nose upturned. Oh, come on. Could you cool it with that just for one night, Polly? Jim yelled, slamming his fist down on the table, hard enough to make chips jump and scatter from the force. Whoa, whoa, Jim, Jimmy, what's the deal? Polly asked, turning to Jim with a look that was more frightened than apologetic. As they spoke, an unseen figure climbed onto the table. Jean, a waitress from a diner at the corner of 34th and Main. Polly had killed her three weeks before for miscounting his change. She raised her hand toward the single light bulb that hung above the table, pressing her pointer finger to her thumb, ready to flick. It usually took a lot of negative energy for a spirit to affect the real world. But that was something I could help with. I reached out and focused on the tip of her finger as she flicked. 
the bulb shattered, and the room was plunged into darkness. I took a moment to recover as the goons began to panic. I could feel my heart already pounding in my chest from just the small amount of time that I gave Jean. Sometimes I think I feel my heart stop when I bring a spirit into the world of the living. It's almost as if, just for a moment, we switch places. I could hear the men murmuring to each other in the dark. What's going on? Hey, Beatty, is that you? I thought you weren't coming, Anthony yelled. One of the other men shoved him. Would you hush? Polly hissed, something between a yell and a whisper. What if it's O'Shea's boys? Or Garibaldi's? I could barely make out the resigned, sorry, Anthony offered in response. They didn't seem to get what was going on. It was time to put on a show. I turned to Barney, former four-time heavyweight champion, refused to take a dive up until he hit the mat for the last time, and whispered, Tell everyone to get ready. You have ten seconds to make some noise. I knelt, looking around the room. My left eye was as much in the dark as the boys out there, but my right could see the friends I'd brought with me clear as day. Jean, still on the table, stifling a laugh at their confusion. Barney, next to some bottles behind the bar and ready to start breaking them. And Danny, across the way, just waiting to pull the heat out of the room. I'd found Danny a couple weeks before then, wandering down the docks. Said he'd found himself on the wrong side of Mickey O'Shea, and ended up taking a swim. Up until then, he'd mostly been keeping an eye on them and their organization for me. I took a deep breath, preparing myself for what was to come. Closed my eyes, felt my heart slow. The fatigue hit me almost as soon as I heard the first bottle break. Jean began to scream. The room shook with her ghostly wailing. I blacked out, just for a second, and then the adrenaline surged as my heart restarted. Who's there? I heard someone call from across the bar. It's him! It's gotta be! Anthony said in a wavering voice. He ain't real, Anthony. The trench man's just a gossip rag rumor. Matthew said he saw him. He interrupted a deal that they were trying to make with McMurphy last month. Hey, why were you talking to Matthew? Oh, we go to the same barber. Enough, you two. It's gotta be someone else messing with us. Just then, I caught my breath and rose from behind the bar, drawing my forty-five. Jean, Barney, and Danny all had their hands placed over where I needed to fire ghostly targets in the dark. The first shot went through Jean's palm and into Polly's neck. I heard his body hit the table on the way down. She was smiling. She reminded me of Gladys for some reason. For a moment, my thoughts drifted back to her. But I forced those thoughts down for a more appropriate time. Barney and Danny both moved, suddenly pointing down. I took the hint and hit the deck. Danny walked through the bar toward me as bullets riddled the back wall, showering me in glass shards and cheap booze. A pause in the gunfire. He gave me a thumbs up. They were reloading, and it was time to go. I vaulted over the bar and heard Anthony curse as he fumbled with his gun, dropping it. I pointed, fired at Barney's hand. 
The muzzle flash illuminated a splash of red where Jim's head used to be. Anthony yelped in the dark, crawling on hands and knees, groping blindly for the dropped gun. Barney indicated the gun with his foot, almost as if to nudge it. I kicked it away, drawing my knife. Tell me about the sigil, I snarled. The, the what? Anthony said. He sounded like a child on the verge of tears. The sigil, the bar on fifth. You extorted the owner, killed his wife. Don't act stupid. I swear I don't know what that is. We've been working out of the casino. The pack of Holloways all month. Wait, is that what this is all about? Danny said. The sigil closed down after a fire last year. The owner died. Yeah, but his son has been running it, I said, turning to him. He didn't have a son. It's just been rotting since it burned down, Danny said. I tried to understand what I'd just heard. I was still looking at him when I began to hear it. Strange words like daggers in my ears. All hard edges plunging down into my mind, each one like the stroke of a knife. Gene, Barney, and Danny all froze in place as I looked to each of them in turn. They began to lose focus, the clear edges of their forms blurring away until they were gone, faded from my vision. Before I could comprehend what had just happened, I felt the impact of a bottle against my helmet. It didn't hurt, but it was enough of a shock to let Anthony get away, to make his way past me and start running up the stairs before I could get to him. When I turned to follow, she was there, standing between me and the door. Marcy, what's going on? We've been looking for you for a while, Mr. Ward. How did... Who are you? The Order has gone to great expense to recover you. We've all made sacrifices. As she said this, there was a slight annoyance in her voice I didn't quite understand. Who are you? What do you want with me? You know what? The ritual you interrupted in France. It changed you. You aren't quite what we were trying to create. Something in between. Something which requires more study. It's time for you to make your sacrifices too, Mr. Ward. And what are you planning exactly? And what was your plan exactly? Kill yourself and send me after some gangsters, and then... What? Tell me it's time to become a lab rat? I don't think you thought this through. Kind of a bad trap. I wasn't a trap. I was the bait. They are the trap. Marcy turned, pointing a hand toward the staircase behind me. I saw Anthony's body clear the steps, flying for a moment before hitting the landing with a wet thud. Wooden steps creaked under the weight of a feminine frame while her body was contained within the tight knot of a trench coat. Above it, her hair was a blossom of wiry gray frizz, and her eyes stared into mine, wide and unblinking. A strange sight, but what my right eye saw was much stranger. 
and much worse. Her body contained a multitude of spirits, not overlapping, but twisted together. Arms and faces stuck out of her from odd angles. They were stretched, dangling elongated arms, two long faces trapped in masks of pain and horror, all of them twisted around a single point at her hips. A walking bouquet of souls in agony. I looked down at Anthony and saw his soul was twisted inside him. Half of his very spirit stuck out of the back of his head, ghostly eyes looking around in panicked horror, his hands so twisted it seemed to jut out of his forearm rather than his wrist. Even now, I'm not sure if what she had done had actually killed him. What are you? I blurted. She spoke in a chorus of inhuman wails from a single mouth, and her words echoed. I'm what you were supposed to be. I hope that you enjoyed this departure from our usual fare. But tune in next week for something new and exciting that... Uh, excuse me one second, my manager is... More? There's more of this? <clears throat> I'm just being told that you can... Look forward to more adventures of the Great Ghost next week. I'm sure that you're as excited as I am. Until then, this has been yours faithfully and truly, Chester Legree, reminding you that there are horrors and wonders that stalk the shadows. And it is often difficult to tell which is which. Good night, and take care. I'm sorry, really? More of this great ghost drivel? I don't care how cheaply you bought it. I am an actor, damn it! I have performed Macbeth!